1: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each
2: day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. As the Advent Christmas season is in full swing, let's remind ourselves of a couple of common terms that are spoken freely, yet may not be fully understood or grasped. So, in Session 1, let's unpack the beauty and richness of our word, Messiah. And the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Our goal today will be to specifically illuminate this Hebrew term and concept to enlarge and enhance our Christian understanding of the first coming of our Messiah Savior, Jesus Christ, or as Jewish believers would say, Yeshua HaMashiach meaning Jesus the Messiah. So friends, today's session one is called Messiah, Messiah, what's all the fuss about? And this Hebrew term, Messiah, is a somewhat tricky term. It'll require a bit of unpacking so we not only use it correctly, but we understand its first century implications and first century expectations from the Jews of Jesus' day. And believe it or not, even from Jesus' own disciples. First of all, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem into the first century Greco-Roman world, there was already in place a long history in Judaism of what has come to be known as the dual Messiah theory. This dual Messiah theory advanced the notion that the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, pictured both a suffering servant Messiah and a triumphant or conquering king Messiah. Now, the suffering servant Messiah would come in the spirit of and with the ethical voice of the prophets. In other words, the Messiah would be humiliated and scorned by his contemporaries, while his mission would be to challenge the hearts and minds of the Jewish people regarding their sin, by extension, the sin of the whole world." On the other hand, the triumphant or conquering King Messiah was envisioned as a kind of idealized descendant of King David, and would be exalted to a throne as ruler, and be the one who would restore Israel to their longed-for prominence and glory in the world. The suffering servant Messiah is best portrayed in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's grand chapter, Isaiah 53. In actuality, the passage should be read beginning at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, four verses before chapter 53 begins. This is why in some English Bibles there's a heading over 52.13 that says, The Suffering and Glory of the Servant. Just listen to these several verses that for me send chills up my spine every time I read them. I'll read Isaiah 53, just verses 2 through 6. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and friends, peace here is reconciliation between us and God. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him... The iniquity of us all. Now, I gotta tell you, friends, traditional Jewish people and even rabbis today object to this portion of the Hebrew Scriptures as referring to Jesus. In fact, Isaiah 53 and other messianic passages have been intentionally withdrawn from the general reading cycle in many synagogues, and this is certainly a sorry state of affairs. Another familiar portion of the Hebrew scriptures that paint a powerful picture of crucifixion long before crucifixion was even invented and practiced is Psalm 22. It's considered a messianic psalm due to its language that appears to describe some details of being crucified. In addition, Psalm 22 begins with a statement that Jesus quoted while on the cross. Friends, you know it well, I'm sure my god my god why have you forsaken me sound familiar now two of the four gospels record jesus crying this out loud matthew twenty seven forty six and mark fifteen thirty four In traditional Hebrew thought, quoting the opening line or lines of a text indicated one was referring to the entire portion, in this case, all of Psalm 22. Friends, just listen to some verses from Psalm 22 and think about what is pictured here, okay? Here's verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And a potsherd is a broken piece of pottery or ceramic that one might find in an archaeological dig. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and my feet, all my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Does this ring a bell, friends? Of course it does! You've heard this during Easter time, especially on Good Friday. A short portion of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27 will suffice here. Listen to Matthew 27 and a few verses between verses 32 and 44. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "'You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself!' heaped insults on him. Now, friends, the conquering king motif finds its roots in the prophet Zechariah, who, in Zechariah 9, 9, states, "'Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey!' And just one chapter earlier, God declares through Zechariah the prophet this promise. In Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we read, The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Friends, I know this rings a bell with you. In Matthew 21, often referred to as the triumphal entry chapter, we read, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle in riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Interesting enough, friends, when we carefully examine the two Zechariah texts, we must first arrive at the conclusion that who was coming to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people was the Lord God. And the second conclusion we must arrive at, as crazy as it sounds, is that Jesus had to be God. In other words, Messiah had to be God himself. Now, friends, keep your seatbelts on here because we'll see that this is precisely what the Jewish religious leaders believed Jesus was claiming for himself. And we will take a look at a few New Testament scripture passages that bring this to light. But first, I want us to put on first century sandals and imagine ourselves there in Israel, imagining ourselves under the iron thumb and rule of the Roman Empire. Of course, Roman captivity was nothing like the Egyptian, Babylonian, or Assyrian captivities, but it still had someone else in charge, someone else calling the shots. While the Jews enjoyed a measure of freedom, they still cried out for a deliverer, a rescuer, a messiah, if you will, who would come and restore Israel's rightful place on top and living as a self-governing nation. Now friends, if you were there and living under these first century conditions, which Messiah would you be clamoring for, salivating for, the suffering servant one or the conquering king one? I don't even have to answer that question for you, do I? But let's put the scriptures to the test and see just what emerges in the minds of Jesus' own disciples according to the New Testament records, okay? Okay. Let's begin before Jesus' resurrection. Let's begin during his earthly ministry of three years. Let's begin with that famous conversation between Jesus and Peter when Jesus asked his disciples, Just who do people say that I am? This record appears in Matthew chapter 6 verses 13 through 20. The disciples replied to Jesus' question with the following answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked, But what about you disciples? Who do you say that I am? Are you ready? Here it comes, that famous and glorious reply by Peter. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow! Jesus is tickled pink and declares a blessing over Peter. Impressive, right? Shortly after that, Matthew then records this statement. Then he, Jesus, ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? This word ordered in the Greek means to charge, commission, instruct, even admonish, or give an explicit command. Are you kidding me? You mean we can't tell other people that you're the Messiah? Come on, Jesus! We Jews have been waiting for you for umpteen generations, and now you want us to keep quiet about you? okay now the scene shifts the very next verse that occurs right after jesus said this is matthew 16:21 and following listen carefully now from that time on right after peter made his exquisite declaration Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What? What kind of Messiah are you anyway? I can just imagine Peter mulling this over in his mind. After all, listen to what he now declares literally minutes after that wonderful messianic proclamation. Matthew tells us in verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Amazing. Jesus's blessing just a few minutes ago now turns to a rebuke of Peter. Jesus replies to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What? You just praised me in front of all my friends, and now you're scolding me? What kind of Messiah are you anyway? And friends, This is the quintessential question, isn't it? What kind of Messiah are you, Jesus? Aren't you the triumphant, conquering King Messiah we've been waiting for? Aren't you going to turn the tables on Rome and elevate us back to where we belong, on top? Aren't you going to dethrone Rome and put us back in charge? Evidently, no. You see, friends, Jesus was attempting to correct his own disciples' warped view of his messianic mission. And while they were expecting a militant warrior messiah after the likes of King David, Jesus couldn't allow them to go out and proclaim he is that messiah. Now, friends, let's look at a post-resurrection account. Let's take a look at Luke 24 and that well-known account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The whole story is from Luke 24:13 to the end of the chapter. But let's just capture a few key statements by these two disciples. Luke informs us that this walk occurs sometime in the afternoon after Jesus rises from the dead. While they were discussing the tragic events of the last few days, you know, the crucifixion, Jesus himself appears and begins talking with them. But he cleverly keeps them from recognizing him because he's got to get a truth across to them. So Jesus invites himself into the conversation by asking, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Well, these two disciples are just shocked that someone in Jerusalem wouldn't know what incredible things just took place. So he urges them to continue informing him of the weekend's events by asking, What things? Listen to how they respond, friends. Listen carefully. They say... The things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Can you feel that? Can you sense that total hopelessness in their voices? Hopelessness about what? Friends, I hope I'm not going to sound too sacrilegious here, but let's bring this idea forward into our time and put this in the context of a superhero movie. Picture these downcast and despondent disciples blurting out to Jesus, we were expecting a hero, but he didn't show up. We shined the bat signal, but he never came to our rescue. Now what are we supposed to do? You see, friends, the hero, Jesus, Did show up, but the disciples skewed view of their Messiah, and his mission prevented them from seeing the real Jesus, the real Messiah, the Messiah that was to first suffer and die. The hero's mission was first to establish a spiritual kingdom, and not an earthly kingdom as the disciples had been expecting and hoping for. Now, as promised, let's take a quick look at how the Jewish religious leaders responded to Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. In other words, his claim to be God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, John paints a picture of what took place after Jesus heals a crippled man on the Sabbath. John, in 5.16, says that the Jewish leaders began persecuting Jesus. In defending himself, Jesus replies, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Friends, what on earth is Jesus trying to tell us here? If we didn't have John's clarifying statement about how the Pharisees reacted, we might never figure it out. So I believe John adds for his audience this clarifying comment. For this reason they, the Pharisees, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Another reaction by the Pharisees occurs in John 8.58, when Jesus claims to be the I Am, a direct reference to the I Am of Exodus 3.14, where God introduces himself to Moses. The Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah meaning the anointed one. And friends, our word Christ is just the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ mean anointed or anointed one. Friends, Christ is not Jesus' last name, sorry to say. We might still ask, what does anointed even mean? Anointed for what? I'm glad you asked. The idea and meaning behind anointed comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Priests, prophets, and kings were usually anointed at the inauguration of their ministries. This signaled and symbolized that they were being called to a special mission. In other words, they were being commissioned to a special task. For example, in Exodus 28 and 29, Aaron and his sons are anointed with oil. In 1 Samuel 9, Saul is anointed king. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah is symbolically anointed as prophet by the casting of Elijah's mantle on him. Garments and even tabernacle furnishings were anointed to be separated out for special service. In Exodus 29 30 and 40, Aaron's garments and the tabernacle furnishings were anointed, set apart for holy service to the Lord. In the New Testament, we see that anointing with oil was a hospitable act on guests and travellers to cool them down and add a fragrance to their body. It was also used to anoint the sick for healing, as in Mark 6.13. In Luke 10, the Good Samaritan comes to the aid of a man attacked by robbers, and helping him includes anointing his body with oil and wine to help speed the healing process. Friends, all these uses beg the question, well, then what about Jesus? Was he anointed too? And to that I'll give a resounding yes. When Jesus visited the synagogue in Nazareth, he himself declares in Luke 4:18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." notice three particular words here friends anointed sent and proclaim these all indicate jesus was anointed for and sent on a particular mission to proclaim a particular message well you could still ask friends where's the oil <clears throat> But I propose that it appears the shadow of the physical oil led to the reality of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, a spiritual anointing by the Holy Spirit. We even see some instances of the spiritual anointing by the Holy Spirit in our Old Testament. In Numbers 11, Moses is anointed with the Holy Spirit. In Deuteronomy 34, Joshua is anointed by the Holy Spirit. In Judges 3, judges are anointed as well. It's also very likely David, aside from being anointed with oil, was anointed with the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 51, he prays to God to not take the Holy Spirit from him. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Friends, I say all this to say that in the New Testament, in relation to Jesus, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He declared this himself in Luke 4, as I mentioned. So I propose to you that God the Father anointed his son Jesus with the Holy Spirit at his water baptism by John the Baptist, per Matthew 3, and the other three Gospels. You recall that scene, right, friends? The heavens open. a voice from the clouds spoke, and a dove representing the Holy Spirit landed on Jesus. That was his anointing. So, friends, it's entirely fitting that Jesus be called the Messiah, the Anointed One, God's personal choice to be sent on a divine mission, come to earth, and ultimately die for the sins of all mankind. The Christmas carol, hark the herald angels sing, said it best. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, Emmanuel meaning God with us. Let's try this year to graduate from just seeing Jesus as manger Jesus. Let's see him as Messiah Jesus, the Jesus who came into our broken world to die on the cross for our sins. Maybe this Christmas we should say, Merry messiah That'd be interesting to try, wouldn't it? Might even open some doors to a neat conversation. Friends, let's not forget the Messiah in the manger had the shadow of the cross being cast over him. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I truly appreciate those of you who write in and share your feedback. Please keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. So if it's blessing you, please join the support team, especially now during these challenging financial times. Your faithful and sacrificial generosity is keeping this program on the air. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Mary Messiamus. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has
1: meant to you, email him at a word from the Word at That's a word from the word at minister.com.